Well, good morning. I want to draw our attention real quick to some of the words we just sang this morning. I think sometimes we transition so soon. Uh, We just sang that God is a rock in our salvation. Because of that, we will not be shaken in Psalm 62. Then we sang, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. And then we just sang, one with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. Only the Christian can sing these things and mean it. Uh, And even as we're reminded this morning of people that we love that have gone to be with the Lord, I'm just so thankful if you've ever been around people that don't know Christ around death, uh, how void of hope it is. But we can sing these lyrics with full hearts and full confidence uh, knowing that uh, death is just the beginning. And so I uh, just wanted to say I loved Colleen Jackson, so thankful for her. She was loved and respected by many, and I'm thankful for the words that we just sang, that no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. Only the Christian can sing those lyrics. Can I pray for us once more uh, before we jump into God's word? I do so because I need God's spirit as I preach, and we all need God's spirit as we listen to his word. So let me pray for us. God, we love you, and we live in total dependence upon you. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray with the psalmist, open my eyes, O God, that I may behold the wonderful things within your word. We express our own inadequacy. I express my own inadequacy of making these words um, powerful. That is something only the spirit of God does in our life. And so we express your sufficiency to do so. Lord, we need you now. Lord, be with us. And uh, we pray that this time would be honoring to you. Amen. Well, the story is told in 1982. The LA Times carried the story of Anna Mae Penica, a 62-year-old lady who had been blind from birth. At 47, she married a man that she had met in her Braille class. And for 15 years, he did the singing for both of them until he totally lost his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. So both of them now are completely blind. Anna Mae had never seen any of the faces of those she loved most, had never seen the colors of the clouds in the sky, had never seen a color of the food that she had eaten. Then, in October of 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jewel Stein Eye Institute at UCLA performed surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from Anna May's eyes. And for f- the first time at the age of 62, she could see. The article says that she was amazed at how much bigger and how much brighter everything was. She says, when I first saw people, I thought some were taller, some were skinnier, some were fatter, and some were shorter than I had expected. Anna Mae has now hardly been able to wait to wake up in the morning, the article says, to splash water on her face, to put on her glasses, and to enjoy the changing morning light. At 62 years old, her vision is now 2030. It says, good enough later for her to drive, her, get her driver's license. You gotta just think about this. How wonderful it would have been to See the faces of those you had only felt with your hands, but never with her eyes. Waves that she had only 
heard but never seen sunset. She had only heard explained but never really beheld. Can you imagine living your life in total darkness and then finally receiving the gift of sight? We can only begin to imagine this wonder and this thrill of seeing for the first time the eyes are so critical and such a fundamental piece of our senses and it is so foundational in how we behold and communicate and comprehend. But the Bible speaks of a more wonderful type of seeing and a more wonderful type of sight than even that which Anna May experienced. Matthew 5, 8, you can turn there, is going to read... Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I have a question for you this morning. Are you pure in heart? Do you want to see God? We're going to be looking at the most famous sermon given by the most famous preacher in the history of the world And in this sermon, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is addressing his followers. And he's addressing his followers in the context of pharisaical externalism. To the Pharisees who would honor God with their mouths, but Matthew 15, 8, their hearts were far from him. Jesus would tell them in Luke 11, you clean the outside of the cup, Pharisees, but you leave it mingy and dingy on the inside. You tithe mint and rue, but you don't really Love me. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus is going to say to these same Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus never pulls punches. And so he's describing for his followers what being a Christ follower actually looks like, what it actually means. And in Matthew 5, in these opening verses, there are these spiritual birthmarks that describe someone who has been born again by God. He's not telling them what they have to do to become a Christian. He's telling them how they are to live because they have been changed by God. And these beatitudes that Jesus gives are altogether backwards from the beatitudes of the world. We're going to see this word, blessed, over and over and over again. And if you've grown up in the church, there's a synonym where if you were explaining what does it mean to be blessed, and if I was going to ask you, you would maybe say the word happy because that's how it's been typically understood. And there's truth in that. Jesus is going to say happy are the people that mourn and are pure in heart. But, but it's more than that because happiness, when we think about that word, refers to an internal subjective state meaning that you feel something, but it's more than that here. It has to do with an external perspective of the way that God views you. It's not just happiness in regards to how you feel. It's happiness or blessedness in regards to how God views views those who are defined by these traits. And the best English word to define what we have here as blessed is the word congratulations. From God's perspective to man, these are the ones God defines as blessed. He is saying to you, if this is what defines your life, congratulations, good on you. From my perspective to you, congrats. But we too easily buy into the Beatitudes of the world. 
What are those? Blessed are the wealthy, they can buy what they want. Blessed are the aggressive, the early bird gets the raise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for notoriety, they'll get noticed. Blessed are those who are sexually liberated, their body, their choice. Blessed are the schemers, the grinders, the hustlers, they'll get whatever they want. But these one-liners that Jesus is going to give are so different, and they're so worthy of our attention I want to walk through the first handful of them so we can see the progression in Jesus' mind. And then we'll land on verse 8. It says in verse 3, Blessed are the pure in heart, or sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus speaks of poverty here, He's not talking in regards to the financial bottom line, but this is a pious recognition of everything that we lack. It is the opposite of self-assured. It is a total dependence upon God. You remember the prodigal son? It says that when he came to his senses, when he came to the end of himself, that's poor in spirit. It's someone who can sing with a full heart, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling And the people that are poor in spirit are also, in verse 4, those who mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A confession of our need for grace leads to a contrition over our sin. They're mourning not because they have an Eeyore perspective on life. In fact, the opposite. Jesus says to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. But blessed are those who mourn because they recognize their sin. They mourn over it. Do you have a real disgust over your sin? Do you mourn over your sin? Jesus says, congratulations, because I will comfort you. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When we think of meekness, sometimes we're tempted to think of a spineless hanging of the shoulders, a groveling. We view meekness as antithetical to strength. But when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, what he has in mind here is a combination of patience, humility, and a submission to the word of God. The meek person has no desire to be dignified, no desire to be recognized, but they deflect all praise to God. And these people inherit the earth. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They long for true satisfaction. In our uh, Bible study at home in Santa Clarita, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you see a search by King Solomon for true satisfaction. And then I love in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes one, I was just teaching through this on Thursday, that that desire, that craving that every single person has for satisfaction, Solomon is struggling and he's upset almost. And in verse 13 he says, you're the one who has done this to me, God. You're the one that has placed and hardwired within my DNA a searching for satisfaction, a craving for something that fills the void of my life. Everybody searches for satisfaction, but not everybody is filled. Jesus says only one type of person is filled. Only one type of person is satisfied. You know who it is? The person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The world believes thou shall not is written across every single pleasure. 
and thou shall is written across the door of every misery. The world says, come to me if you actually want to live. Drink your fill of sin. Enjoy every temptation and bask in indulgence and you will be filled. And Jesus says here, if you actually want to live, come to me, drink of my promises, bask in my goodness, and you will be filled. You will be satisfied. We don't talk about this enough. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and crave and thirst for righteousness. They and they alone will be satisfied. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Two considerations and then one question. First, two considerations. Number one, you have received more mercy from God than you have ever extended to anybody else. Number two, you have grieved God more than anyone else has ever, ever grieved you. Now question, would you like God's memory of your sin to be as long as your memory of other sin against you? No. And so God, Jesus here says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who extend mercy because it is evidence that they have tasted and received the mercy of God. And here is where we will focus for the remainder of our time. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God the irony here of God declaring a blessing upon the pure can't be overstated because we live in a world where holiness of life is inseparable from misery. Righteousness is a confining straitjacket to those who don't know God. But Jesus says, congratulations to the pure in heart. For you, emphatic, and you alone shall see God. We're gonna look at three observations regarding purity of heart this morning. Number one, it's nature. Number two, it's promise. And number three, it's pursuit. Purity of heart, it's nature, it's promise, and it's pursuit. First, it's nature. What is the nature of a pure heart? Jesus is constantly going after us at the heart level. Jesus is not looking for reformed behavior. He's not looking for rinsed manners. He's not looking for renovated externals. He's always going after the heart. And the question is why? Why is there such a theme in the scripture for the heart? Well, look at your phones for just a moment. Look at the news. What's the problem with the world? What's wrong with the world today? The problem is the human heart. You are not fundamentally what other people observe you to be or believe you to be. You are fundamentally what you are on the inside. You are what you are in your heart. And this is the you that God knows. God knows a different you than everyone else around you. John 2.25, people are coming and they're talking to Jesus. And he says he doesn't need anybody to testify concerning man because he already knows what is within man. He knows people at the heart level, so he's never waiting to receive a memo or an update on anybody. He knows us at the heart level, and he's looking for heart 
purity. It is not those who have clean behavior and polished manners that ascend the hill of the Lord in Psalm 24, but who? He who has clean hands and a what? Pure heart. God knows you at the heart level because your heart is your entire person. Your heart involves your mind. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks within his heart, so he is. It involves your emotions. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Your heart involves your will. Daniel 1, 8, Daniel purposed in his heart. And it involves your conscience. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You are your heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks because out of the heart, your entire life is lived. And this is why Proverbs 4.23 says, to watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. One of the first things we need to consider is that the natural heart And if you're in here today and you don't know God, the natural heart, biblically speaking, is impure. Turn to Matthew 15 real quick with me in verse 19 and 20. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. He's saying you are your heart. Everything that comes out of you that is sinful is your heart. And there is nothing that the natural man can do to remedy this problem. And this is why Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? No. And neither can anyone else for that matter change their heart. So the question is, how can someone be made pure in heart? Well, purity of heart begins principally and positionally at the moment of our salvation. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit with you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So positionally and principally, at the moment of regeneration, God gives you a new heart. You no longer have the same heart of stone that you had. You're given a heart of flesh. But then secondly, there is a progressive nature to purity in heart where we become increasingly pure until we meet God face to face. This is why David is described as a man after God's own what? Heart. It's because knowing God, loving God, obeying God was the pursuit of his life. Jesus is speaking to his followers and he tells them, congratulations if you're pure in heart. Blessed are you. What else does it mean though? Well, to be pure in heart means not only to be cleansed. Wheat, when it was separated from chaff, was katharizo, which means unmixed, removed. Uh, I don't know how many of you ever got to meet my grandpa, my dad's dad. Um, He was Greek, uh, loved the San Antonio Spurs, um, put Tabasco on everything. Um, and he always used to tell me, Greeks wear gold. Greeks wear gold. Now, gold, like any other precious metal, goes through a refining process where you get slag. And anything that is not gold is removed. So it's cleansed in the one sense where it's purified. But what makes gold pure? It's not just when the impurities are removed. What makes gold pure is when you only have one substance remaining, gold. 
the idea of purity doesn't just mean that we've been cleansed. It means that we are totally unmixed, undivided, full focus, resolute in affection, whole devotion to God. Our motives, our thoughts, our conscience are totally surrendered and submitted to our Savior, free from any deceit and disguising. Do you live a disguised life? Jesus says it's not worth it. Because blessed are the pure in heart, those who have been cleansed, and those who live a life of total undivision. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book on what it means to be pure in heart. And the name of the title of that book is Purity in Heart Means to Will One Thing. I think that's a good definition for us. God cares about purity of heart so much amongst his people. He doesn't tolerate alternative lovers. There is a key word in the book of Hosea, not in a crass way. You know what that key word is in the book of Hosea? When God is talking about the unfaithfulness of his people, 20 times the word for whoredom is used. Because his people are divided in affection. God doesn't tolerate spiritual looseness. This is why in Ezekiel 24, 32, he gives his people a new heart that will fear him forever. To be pure in heart means to pray with the psalmist in Psalm 86. Oh God, unite my heart to fear your name. Oh God, give me a heart that only loves you. Undivided in affection, unified in purpose, clean from the adhesion of anything that pollutes my life and anything that causes me to not see you rightly. How do I know if my, my heart is pure? Well, four questions. Take this examination. Do you truly hate sin? Or do you, like Moses' mother, hide your sin in a basket along the reeds of the Nile so that later on you'll be able to find it? The wicked cater to their lust. They make provision to feed their lust. They project and plan in their mind how to bring their lust about. But the pure in heart, they actually hate sin. So that's the first question. Do you hate it? Number two, do you delight in holiness? Do you begrudgingly comply with Christian principles or do you eagerly seek to obey God because you delight to obey God? There's a difference between compliance and obedience out of the heart. Number three, do you have a large spiritual appetite? You can evaluate the content of your soul by how hungry you are for the things of God. Do you have a large spiritual appetite? Or did you have to talk yourself into coming to church today? Number four, are the smiles and frowns of God of greater weight than the smiles and frowns of the world and those around you? Are you grieved by what grieves God? Do you find joy in that which brings God joy? That's purity in heart, that's his nature, but I wanna look secondly with you at purity's promise. I wanna focus here for a moment. What does it mean to see God? Now, when I was growing up, I heard much about the danger, let's just say impurity. If I was gonna talk about impurity, I, I was at a conference on Thursday in the Christian school. They asked me to speak on purity. Um, and every single one of those students growing up in a Christian high school has heard some sort of sermon on impurity. And I asked them, I just said, hey, before, I just wanna, I walked around and I asked them, hey, what have you heard on purity? 
or, or sexual purity for that matter, and they just said, don't, stay away, don't do it, it's bad, you'd be a fool. I, well, I know Proverbs 7, absolutely, all these things are true. Don't go down that road until an arrow will pierce your liver. You'd be stupid. And this is for the most part what, an, what a young person, even growing up in the church today, I work with them at the Master's University, and if I talk to them about purity, this would be their understanding. Don't until a certain time. It's bad, it'll ruin your life. It'll disqualify you from ministry, and all those things are true, yes and amen, and the Bible's full of warnings. But I just want to tell you, as we, as we talk about purity's promise, that they shall see God. Fathers, when's the last time You've grabbed your sons by the collar and said, oh, son, blessed are the pure in heart. You know why? Because there is a rich promise and reward to those who are pure. And it's that everything you've grown up hearing becomes experientially real for you. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not believe and affirm and check a box. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are the pure in heart. You shall see God, son. Oh, he's better He's better than anything that you would ever, ever fill your life with. He's more satisfying. He's more wonderful. I don't know how many students in the church grow up hearing that. Old men are to train the younger men. Older women train the younger women. When's the last time you've gone to someone and said, Oh, knowing God is sweet and precious. One day we will all see God face to face. First John 3, 2, we will see him as he is. Revelation 22, 4, they will see the Lamb of God and his name will be on their foreheads. But what does this mean for us to see God now? Because this is a present tense continuous action verb, which means that it starts now and it goes into infinity. Those who see God, it's not just talking about a future reality where one day I'll meet God face to face. It's talking about for every single 12-year-old in here and for every single 80-year-old in here, it starts today. It's an already not yet reality. Jesus refers here, I believe, mainly to the seeing that takes place with the eyes of faith. Jonathan Edwards states, there is a more perfect way of perception than the eyes of our body. And here, Jesus is revealing to us that the eye of the soul is vastly more perfect than the eye of the body. The eyes of the soul offer more satisfaction, more enjoyment, more pleasure, more wonder than anything you have ever seen with your physical eyes. I want you to think for a moment. The greatest delights that God has extended to you as someone who has been made in his image is something that God shares in himself. Meaning that if God made you in his image, the main thing that that has to do with it correlates to your own mind. We share something with God that serves as a supreme catalyst for our pleasure, and that is our minds, our thinking. You live in a world that has been stupefied. And in scriptures, we see this vernacular to see God, taste and see, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, because it reveals a deep comprehension of who God is. Every single believer, if you're a Christian, has the ability to see God. But not all Christians, not all believers, live with the same level of clarity and vibrancy in their vision of God. Maybe the scales of your eyes have been removed from seeing the beauty of Christ, but many fail to put their glasses on so that day by day they might see Jesus Christ more clearly. When I was 19, I was just, I think, angsty. And I read the words of Spurgeon who says, every single person 
has been granted access into the sea of all that is Christ. And the majority are content to wade and waddle ankle deep in the sea of its fullness. Every single person Christ has justified, he will sanctify. Everybody has equal standing positionally before God. But not everyone in here experiences the same richness and satisfaction and joy that comes from seeing Christ more fully. It is possible to live a half-hearted Christian existence, neither partaking in the fleeting pleasure of the world and neither partaking in the full pleasure that Jesus Christ himself offers in the gospel. Many Christians live their lives here, dabbling in the pleasure of Jesus on Sundays and neglecting the sin of the world, but never going, oh my goodness, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he amazing? It's possible to sing Amazing Grace and never actually felt or meant the words that you sing. This is Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus, right? He says in Ephesians 1.18 that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. He's saying, my prayer for you, Ephesus, is that you might see God more clearly that you may know the hope you have, this glorious inheritance we have, this tremendous power we have in the spirit. He says, oh, please see it more. This is my prayer for you, Paul says. Do you know the answers? Do you know the truth? I want you to be even more blown away by who God is. Question for you. What is Satan's chief strategy with an unbeliever? What's his chief strategy? Well, I'm glad it's revealed. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world, the way he works in an unbeliever's mind is to keep them and to blind them from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is his chief strategy, to blind the minds of unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. But what's Satan's chief strategy for a believer? It's the exact same. You are no longer under the reign of Satan, the God of this world, but you are still susceptible and vulnerable to his schemes. And the schemes of Satan are as follows. It's to blind you from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan's chief tactic for every single person growing up in the church is to keep them from actually saying, in their hearts, oh God, you are an awesome God. They can believe it to be true theologically. But as long as they don't really get raptured by the thrill of who God is, mission accomplished. Every single demon convention says, Jesus is God, amen. But not all go, he is wonderful. Unbelievers don't see God Matthew 13, 13, seeing they do not see. They just don't get it. They don't have a need for God. They have no recognition of their need for rebirth. They may assent to truths regarding the nature of God, but they don't really see him. There are some of those who have been educated in the truth, who can declare the panoply of God's attributes and can cross-examine them in scripture, and yet with the eyes of their heart have never seen God. Have you ever seen God? What does this mean? 
Well, three things elsewhere. How, how, what does it mean to see God? Three quick things. Tommy Barrington, I saw him this morning. He's a dentist. I go to the doctor all the time because my body's made of glass. And when I'm waiting in the doctor's office, they come in and say, Mr. Art, Art, and they give up on my last name. And they say, the doctor will what? See you now. To see God means, first of all, to be admitted into his presence. When Queen Esther heard King Ahasuerus would see her now, it means that she would be ushered into his presence. And so to see God through the eyes of faith means that we are totally thrilled by the presence of God. It is possible for you to affirm theologically God's omnipresence and yet never to feel the thrill of, oh God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed on the wings of the dawn, you're there. Oh God, thank you. David was thrilled in the Psalms with the presence of God. And to see God was to be admitted into his presence. And to live all of your life doing the laundry or in commuting or at work under this overall banner. God is not just with me. He's not just an omnipresent spirit hovering over me. He is near to me. And to see God means that you feel that nearness and it becomes precious to you. Secondly, to see God means you apprehend his awesomeness and beauty. In John 14, 26, I, I remember reading this. I think I was in college. And it just like, I, you've read the book of John a number of times. And he says, he who loves me will obey my commandments. And to the one who loves me and obey my commandments, I will disclose or manifest myself to him. Did you know that there is a gradual degree of disclosure that Jesus himself offers to those who are pure? Not every single person in here sees the same level of Jesus Christ. Jesus' promise to those who obey, I will present, progressively show you, manifest, and disclose a deeper version of who I am so that you see me more clearly. On the opposite side of the theological spectrum, there's this idea that there's, there's the experience and then there's the truth. Jesus is a massive proponent that obeying the truth, living the truth, and loving the truth makes you go, oh man, this is wonderful. The Puritans make charismatics look tame because they were thrilled by knowing God. And it means to apprehend his awesomeness and beauty. Jonathan Edwards says this, to see God is this. It is to have an immediate, sensible, and certain understanding of God's glorious excellency and love. He says, when we dwell here, we dwell at the fountain and spring of pleasure, the manufacturing plant of satisfaction. He says, the love of God is the most suitable entertainment of the soul of man. The greatest pleasure God has given you is to see him through the eyes of faith. And this is what makes heaven, heaven. I ask you a question. Has your heart ever been struck by God's awesomeness? I used to think, no, that's not my personality. When my wife told me we were having a baby, you know, there's all these videos of these dads, <laughs> you know, uh, I just said, no, we're not. Come on, you're lying. Prove it. And then she's like, test, you know. Um, I, just don't, I just don't respond in a certain way. So I thought maybe that's just not my personality. But every single Christian that is seeing God 
there's a response of wonder. To wonder at the power that guides the universe is the same power that guides your life. His sovereignty that orchestrates the stars and kingdoms and rulers and nations is the same sovereignty that governs and orchestrates every single hair that falls from your head. The love that is read on the pages of scripture is experienced in your heart. Romans 5.5 5 says that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Christian, there is a massive difference between believing something to be true and experiencing that thing. And the difference is seeing God. Solomon, who had everything money could buy, says, Ecclesiastes 1.8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. There is a type of seeing that does satisfy, and it is the seeing of God. All other worldly pleasures and enjoyments are sandy in their foundation, but not this one. This one starts now and lasts forever. And lastly, what else does it mean to see God? What well, means to be admitted into his presence, to apprehend his awesomeness, and quickly here, it means to be comforted by his grace. I was just reading through Job in my Bible reading plan, and Job, in the midst of much despair, says, I've always heard this with my ears, that you are God and I'm not. He says, but now my eyes see. I get it. And that is what brought Job true comfort. I've always heard these things, but now I see with my mind. What's the fruit of seeing God? Well, the fruit of seeing God is more purity and more enjoyment in communion with God, greater hatred of sin. The more we hate our sin, the more we pursue God, the more we see God, the more we commune with God, and the more we want more of God. It's a vicious cycle. William Perkins says this, the most basic mark of grace in your life is that you long for more of God. If you can't say that, you're either backsliding or you're not a Christian. The reward of purity is the fuel of its continued pursuit. I seek purity, I see God. I want more purity so I can see more of God. If your goal isn't to see God more clearly, then even your attempts to resist sin will be under the mindset of refusing to violate a principle rather than a refusal to grieve a person, namely your God and Father and friend. If you don't see God, moments spent resisting temptation will feel like a fish out of water. Navy SEALs can hold their breath for four minutes But suppressing sin and pursuing righteousness shouldn't feel like holding your breath. It should feel like real air, like breathing, like true satisfaction. And yet so many people refrain from sin and deny the pleasures of the world and it feels like they're gasping for air because they've never ever experienced the alternative. It's seeing God. Well, third, purities. Nature, purity's promise is that we see God and purity's pursuit, and I'll be done in a few moments. How do our hearts become pure? Well, though it be God's grace and God's work to give it, it is our work to obtain it. Every single thing that God gives to us by the means of command, he works through us by grace. 
meaning that God is the one that sanctifies you, but that never means that God's sovereignty and your sanctification is ever a catalyst for your own passivity and disobedience. Everything that God has commanded you to do, he expects you to do to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and he is the one that supplies the necessary grace in order to accomplish it. James 4.8, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is spirit-empowered sweat. We are commanded, God gives us a new heart, right, in Ezekiel 36, but we are also commanded to take a new heart in Ezekiel 18. He says, cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have sinned, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? God's gracious provision in transforming us is never the reason for our passivity, but rather our confidence in its pursuit. How do I become pure? Well, five quick things. And these are all just an ordinary, just a commitment to the ordinary means of grace. How can my heart become pure? I want to see God. Maybe go, I want to see God more clearly. I want to know him more and more. I've been wading and waddling ankle deep in my knowledge and intimacy with Christ for years. I want to know him like the people I've read about. What makes missionary biographies special? It's not because they had anything you don't have. It's because they long to see more of God. How do we do that? Five things. Well, we, number one, draw near to God's word. God's word being pure itself, purify the impure people who read it. The psalmist says, thy word is very pure in Psalm 119. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. This is the path of purity's pursuit, which means that if God's word is not your priority, neither is your purity. Stop lying to others and stop lying to God if you say you long for purity and you don't make the word of God your priority. And as we look to the word of God, we are inevitably looking to Christ and reminded of the gospel. Number two, we walk with the wise. Joel Beakey says this, association begets assimilation. You become like that which you behold and you become like that which you befriend. You want to be pure? Walk with the pure. Number three, we make no provision for the flesh. Jonathan Edwards says, many professing Christians tempt the devil to tempt them by making provision for the flesh they claim to hate. Many professing Christians tempt the devil to tempt them by making provision for the flesh they claim to hate. What are the things in your life that give... God, grief, that cause you to not see him clearly. Jesus says, gut them out. Seeing God is infinitely better. He looks at you through the lattice of God's word and says, I am better than that. Number four, pray for purity. I'm reading in Genesis, it says, Enoch who walked with God. How do we pray? Well, we pray as we read the scripture. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Oh God, make me like Enoch. I really, really want this. I don't want to just play the Christian game. I don't want to know Christian jargon and sing Christian songs and say, amen, brother, and not mean it from my heart. Oh, God, I want to be like Enoch who walked with you. I want my whole life cut from the same fabric. I want to be undivided in my affection, undivided in my devotion, like the seal upon the wax. God, impress yourself upon me. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, in Psalm 139, examine my life. Put me under trial. Search me and know me. Number five. 
What's the other thing we must do? Well, simply to think. It says in 1 John 3, 3, that whoever has his hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. The Christian faith is a thinking faith. It's not a check your brain at the door faith. If you want to be godly, you must use your brain and contemplate and consider who God is. Present tense, total commitment. Tomorrow's faith is today's unbelief. And tomorrow's holiness is today's impurity. You conform your life to that which you enjoy. And so you must think and dwell deeply so that what you enjoy are the things of Christ. Because the promise is sweet. To see God means everything you've grown up singing becomes experientially real. And I want that. Don't you? Anna Mae Penica later found out that the surgery available that she had received in the 1980s was available to her in the early 1940s. She lived 40 years of blindness unnecessarily. The technique for curing her spiritual blindness was available. And it's available to you or her physical blindness and your spiritual blindness. Do you need a new heart? The Bible says, repent and believe and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And he gives it. Freely, no charge, except to himself. Have you had a pure heart and yet you don't see God in the way you long to? The Bible says, put the glasses on of faith. Love his word, flee from sin, pray for purity, because the promise of sight, of seeing God, is so superior to anything the world could offer. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Can I pray for you?